0: i'm david moscrop welcome to open to debate the crisis in healthcare across the country has opened the door for quote unquote reform in ontario premier doug ford is pushing once again quote unquote innovation in recent days he's taken this message to atlantic canada too what does innovation mean well it could mean further starving the public system of the resources it needs it could mean privatization It could mean introducing a two-track system. Supporters of a strong public system aren't inclined to give conservative reformers the benefit of the doubt, nor should they be. Understanding the future of healthcare in Canada requires us to understand the challenges the system faces and the battle between those who wish to renew the public system and those who wish to undo it. Those are the questions we'll dig into as we ask on this episode, what is the future of public healthcare in Canada? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Vivian Stamatopoulos, Associate Teaching Professor at Ontario Tech University and LTC Advocate. Let's start with going through Doug Ford's suggested reforms to the healthcare system Ontario. Let's start in particular with your area of expertise, long-term care. Uh, Walk me through what Ford is proposing, or is doing rather. Uh, on LTC,
1: Well, I mean, this is you know pretty historically unprecedented what they are doing with uh, ALC patients who will now soon to be LTC residents, right? So that this is what the main problem is is that they are effectively targeting this group of very vulnerable majority seniors in hospitals that are awaiting long-term care beds to open, beds of you know their top five choosing which, you know, historically they had the choice of a certain amount of homes, right? So it's not like they're they're sitting here demanding one specific home. I mean, there's a list of five um, that historically they had. And, and for good reason, you have a list. Um, families actively choose uh, homes based on proximity, based on what, what supports they can provide to the specific individual. For example, many people, you know, that have... Um, Alzheimer's and certain, uh, you know, dementia related issues will be focusing on homes that have, they all should, frankly, have the supports available to care for these individuals, but some are better than others. Um, So, you know, and they also have been looking now more than ever at inspection uh, reports, looking at the history and the reputation of many homes, particularly for profit homes, which we saw overwhelmingly failed uh, specifically with COVID 19 deaths during the pandemic. So, what they are doing now. What they are going to effectively force through the legislature today is what I'm hearing, uh, without any public consultation, which, uh, you know, usually they do, you know, in a democracy. um, They are now going to push through these amendments to the Long-Term Care Act, which has, you know, removed the historical right to consent and which will effectively allow hospitals to push residents into homes against their choice that might be hours away from their family. And you can imagine the disaster that that will create. And worse yet, what we, you know, we raised this issue as soon as we heard this, but it was, you know, um, asked by our minister directly yesterday by Cynthia Mulligan, and we have now video of him saying that if they, you know, are the hospitals now have the ability to really hit these families with daily hospital bills, if they choose not to go to one of these homes, if they essentially, you know, deny going to. Um, one of these homes that they don't feel safe in. And, you know, these can range anywhere from 500 to $1,800 a day. Uh, so it's, you know, this would bankrupt any family. And, and indeed, here's that it will do just that.
0: So we're talking about, you mentioned ALC, uh, it's alternate level of care patients. So these are people who are in high-care beds long-term in the hospital.
1: Yeah, and so- then, the, you know, the, the, the problem is, and we were really quick to point this out, is that look at the... Even if this was a fix for the acute care crisis, which it isn't, yeah. you know, but even if it was, it can't be because the majority of these ALC, alternative level of care, patients are housed in separate parts of the hospital for the most part that have separate kinds of staff working in these units. Many of them are PSWs and RPNs. Um, indeed, many long-term care workers l- left long-term care to go work in these ALC units because it's the same kind of work. Um, the, the units in the hospitals that are the ones in crisis right now that are shutting down, we all know are the emergency rooms and the Mm -hmm. intensive care units. And those staff are very specialized targeted staff. They are not transferable. You can't just close down ALC wings and send the staff to ERs. That's not how it works. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it it isn't even a viable fix if, if it wasn't just so morally repugnant. It won't work at all. At all, it is just a abhorrent way of targeting some of our most vulnerable, and finding a way to filter them out into LTC homes that need to fill their beds. Because if they don't fill it to ninety percent capacity, they don't get the funding that they need. Right.
0: What were hospitals doing um, before this to try to? open up beds? Were, were hospitals trying to pressure patients oh, yeah, they were. or bill yeah. patients before? I mean, yeah. presumably this is a longstanding practice informally in some way. How yeah. has it changed? This is just codifying or giving them new tools well, to push? What's
1: Before, yes, this happened. They, 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 and we heard this all the time. Um, and they would sometimes, like is even as early as a month ago, I was hearing from families who were being threatened like $500, $600 a day, et cetera. Um, but they were able to push back because if it wasn't in that list of five choices, then they could not, le- they could not levy the uninsured rates. What okay. this legislation is doing now is letting them effectively uh, charge these exorbitant rates if it's not in those five homes, right? So it's effectively anyone now is free, free uh, reign for getting charged, you know, $1, 15, $1,600 a day versus, you know, maybe 60, $70 a day which you could get charged before, but now we're looking at, you know, daily rates that will bankrupt these families and, right. and 1500 like, or yeah. whatever. Something like that. Yeah. Today. And you know, I just interviewed for, for global news this morning and, and the story that was associated with it um, discussed UHN university health network and how their fees mm-hmm. are up to $1,800 a day. So, I mean, nobody could afford that. Nobody could afford that. But my fear is that some families are going to indeed bankrupt themselves. Sure. Trying to keep them in a safer hospital, because make no mistake, it is safer than sending them to some of these bad actor homes that are consistently in outbreaks. Because remember, many of these long term care homes are still in outbreak today Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we are still dealing with the consistent staffing shortages. And we don't have a care standard, a daily care standard in place now that would provide appropriate care and staffing. So, you know, you're sending them from hospitals where they certainly have more care, even during this crisis. Mm-hmm. into long-term care homes that are even worse off and they will suffer and then it will also remove care for the for the existing long-term care residents because now you're offloading sure. thousands of people into already overwhelmed and underprepared long-term care homes
0: so if effectively we said what we're going to do is make sure that you suffer through an affordability crisis in housing yeah. your entire life and then when you get into long-term care you're going to suffer through another affordability crisis because we just simply can't be bothered to plan for caring for you.
1: <laughs> right? 100%. But furthermore, yeah. like, you know, I, I, and, and there was like an interesting article which really hit the point home. Uh, I think it was TVA Jim, TVO Jim McGrath published this article yesterday about, well, hold on. Um, look at the, the irony here and the, the mixed messaging. You're saying that COVID is effectively, you know, it's, not, it's done, it's not a problem. Everyone, no masks needed anymore. Don't worry about, you know, mask mandates and vaccine mm-hmm. mandates anymore. But yet, if it's if it's not a crisis and we should all just go back to living a, a, our normal pre-COVID lives, then why apparently is there a crisis in hospitals? Oh, isn't that interesting? Maybe we should treat COVID like it's actually still with us. Just, just you know, putting it out there.
0: Well, yes. But then if you start caring about COVID, you might start having to care about things like climate change and Europe being in a perpetual drought and the collapse of... Of human civilization. Really? I mean, authoritarianism. No,
1: you know, it's going to you know, really ruin your, spi- yeah, gonna ruin your
0: pumpkin spice. <laughs> it's going to ruin your pumpkin spice latte pretty fast. Is that? Yeah. yeah, I know it we're both very excited. We're both very excited for the small pleasures that remain in life. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about this broader crisis, and in other forms of of uh, system. I was trying to. I was about to use a word that I probably shouldn't use because I don't wanna have to put an ex- an explicit note on the episode, um, rat effing of the system. Uh, I'm going to read a quote here that is quite good. Uh, so Doug Ford it was pushing this message in Atlantic Canada. It's not just enough for Ontario. Premier Higgs of New Brunswick is on about it too. Former BC Premier Christy Clark is on about this. So it's a national issue. It's not just Ontario. There's a push to deal with the, the care crisis through Um, outsourcing privatization. This is a quote from uh, Daniel Raza, Dr. Daniel Raza, quoted in the Star saying, if you're a capitalist looking to make money, you wanna treat patients that are the lowest cost to treat. So those patients tend to be healthier patients. They're cheaper to treat. They have fewer complications. They're more likely to speak English. They're more likely to be wealthy. Uh, I wanna use that by way of getting into a discussion about what you think Ford's reforms generally to LTC, to pushing private clinics, to underfunding nurses. Uh, what, what do these mean for patient care? Uh, when the rubber hits the road, you go in to get care, whether it's ALC, LTC, emergency room, surgery, what do you think these reforms mean for, for patients?
1: You suffer, no question. Suffer on early mortality, increased injuries, increased hospitalizations, you suffer. There is no question about it. We have clear evidence you know, out of long-term care On the failure of the for profit industry and and just that industry to actually provide appropriate care, uh, certainly as compared to the municipal homes, which fare the best in Mm -hmm. terms of, you know, you name it, staffing, hospitalizations, outcomes, more, you know, uh, how long you live upon admission, like a variety of different outcomes. And it's not just in Canada, this is international research that has demonstrated the clear failure of the for profit sector, but uh, in particular, you know, these these large uh, private equity companies that are go- that are increasingly getting into healthcare, care um, and, and, you know, they've shown to lead to an increase in 10 percent mortality in long term care. In specific, there was a huge study um, American study that published that research, uh, I believe, last year, and uh, I actually re- retweeted it uh, this morning because it came up. Um, So we know, we know you you fail. You have to, you just sit here and you have to ask yourself, and and we're always trained as sociologists to always ask, who benefits? Who benefits Mm -hmm. from any given policy, any given structure? Who benefits? And it is very clear, very, very clear that it is not the patients. It is not the residents. It is not the average Ontarian that will benefit from privatization. The only people that will benefit are the people who will make money from this process you know, and, and, and what I think is hilarious and I get particularly upset when, when you know, anyone in healthcare doesn't notice this because most healthcare advocates and experts are very well aware of what you need to do in Ontario at least to help address this acute care crisis. You know, two, two very pressing things being repealing Bill 124 and mm-hmm. dealing with these private temp agencies that are gouging our hospitals um, and they were gouging long-term care before, right? So now they've just trickled into hospitals, and those two things are what needs to happen to help fix the acute care crisis and, and retain our nurses and, and to really strengthen our public sector. But curiously, they're they're focusing on on targeting ALC patients as the alleged fix. What are you talking about? And when you look at the ALC case in particular, you know people like the Ontario Healthcare Coalition and pretty much every long-term care family I've spoken to says, well, when you look at that specific decision, who benefits from from having a greater ability to bankrupt these poor patients in a hospital and send them to homes without their choosing? Well, the homes that have bed capacity are the homes that people don't want to go to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a reason why there's long wait lists for the municipal homes that have the, you know, arguably the longest wait list, and then the not-profit homes, and then the for-profit homes are indeed battling to fill their beds. There is there's no question that there was a, uh, for the first time ever, I think, a real focus on for-profit and long-term care because of COVID. Yeah. And it changed, you know, not just Ontarians' views about privatization and long-term care, but the Canadians. I mean, there are national polls suggesting that the overwhelming number of Canadians want a long-term care to be provided like hospitals, non-profit in the public sector, no private for-profit vulture capitalist element. And that is clearly within the Canadian culture to to recognize how important public health care is. And for some reason, we allowed our our long-term care sector to be increasingly privatized out and treated as a commodity like a Tim Hortons chain. I mean, this is ludicrous. Um, And the the homes that will benefit from this policy are the homes that need to fill their beds to get the money, right? So, you know, people have overtly said, is this policy designed to help their... You know, their for-profit buddies fill their beds to keep their money and to keep in business. Right? And that's what people have, have asked. And it's a it's a legitimate question. Sure. Because when you look at it, who's benefiting from this? The the patients will not benefit. The ALC patients will suffer and the existing long-term care residents will suffer. There, I don't see how this at all is in the, the common good interest or how it would in any way, shape, or form benefit these individuals and i don't even see how it would benefit other individuals in the hospital waiting for acute care beds because you know again yeah. the transferability of the staff and and the fact that you have far more effective measures that you could do and you should be doing to ease the crisis in acute care
0: i, I want to come back to bill 124 in a in a couple of minutes this is um, yeah. you mentioned relating to the nurses and caps pay increases one percent or something like that uh, but, but first I want to mention, I want to pick up on something you mentioned. Uh, there is, you mentioned private equity and there's a huge sinister role within the healthcare system for, for yeah. private equity. And we call yeah. it innovation, we call it investment. We, which is to say politicians.
1: Modernization, modernization. is the word I love the most, that BS word.
0: Yep. Modernizing, exactly. Going back to um, a feudal system is modernization. In, in a, a couple of months I wrote about this based, uh, based off of a piece I read in the Globe and Mail by Chris um, Hanna, and uh, this is private equity again, mm-hmm. finding their way into the Canadian healthcare system And this is from June, I'm going to quote um, Chris, fueled by international private equity funds, consolidating firms have been on the tear in other health professional industries as well, buying up practices in fields such as veterinary medicine, dental care, optometry, and pharmacies, and assembling them into chains. So we have uh, private equity, big capital, finding their way into the healthcare system through different routes. These are things that are not covered currently under health insurance. These are effectively private. Um, and now what we're seeing is this creeping privatization and creeping role of private equity. And I guess I would say to people, think about when you have to go to the pharmacy. Think about when you have to go to the dentist. Think of when you have to go see a vet and ask yourself, is that what you want uh, yeah. in a clinic? Is that what you want in a long term care? I mean, it seems like you know we're, we're, we're sliding into that privatized system. Uh, or rather sleepwalking into it
1: yeah it's terrifying it is terrifying and and you know you don't want to go to the nefarious place of oh my gosh are these vulture predatory capitalists really you know have they have they captured our politicians have they captured well our yes government? Right? Because, <gasps> yes but, that the that, answer is yes Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and it's so hard to, to create a an opposing argument because you see things that are happening by the day and and you can't help but be terrified because, you know, and the evidence supports that they are not in the best interest of the average, you know, Ontarian, Canadian, they are not in the best interest. We know this. We have all the evidence Look to the United States as an equivalent. I mean, my gosh, what was it? A study came out the other day that a half a million, I got to find the exact number, but it was a lot of people died that didn't have to die from COVID because of their private health care system. It was an exorbitant amount of of preventable deaths, and I mean we have this well before COVID. You know, nobody we, consistently Canadians value their public health care above everything else. I mean, above everything else, public polling has historically shown that is the one thing Canadians are most proud of, and this is the one thing that is now being you know, invaded by these, by these vulture predatory capitalists, because all they care about is their bottom line. That's all they care about. They don't care about how people will suffer, how people will die. Uh, we have the evidence of what happens when you start to allow these interests into various healthcare settings. Um, and it's just, it's, it's frightening, it's, it's frightening. And when you have politicians that maybe, who knows, friends with these people, involved with these people uh, you know shareholders themselves in these organizations who knows right but the, but the point is when we have willing and amenable politicians that are changing historical legislation to remove things like medical consent to help facilitate this process it, it is it is so incredibly frightening and, and the scary part is i don't think a lot of ontarians recognize just the dangerous precedent this is setting And i mean the first thing i tweeted when i heard about this last wednesday evening when there was a you know trickle reports that something was coming the next day and it did come the next day on thursday uh this did the, the amendments they planned for for bill seven um you know i just said you know that, that you know sure they're going to go after you know the the elderly and our most vulnerable first by, by stripping their medical right to consent their historic medical right to consent who's next you're all you're all next i mean how bill, this bill seven this the is the precedent? bill that.
0: This is the bill that empowers them to charge families. Yeah. yeah.
1: The amendments to the Long-Term Care Act. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to make a note here because uh, people will say, well, look, there's always been private delivery in the public system. This isn't the NHS in the UK where it's run by the state. It's funded by the state as an insurance scheme. But I want to make a note to that. There's a difference between... You going to your family doctor who mm-hmm. owns their own their own family practice and has owned it for years and they're in the community and you know them and you see them and maybe they've teamed up with another doctor or two. They've got a couple of nurses and chains of private equity funded providers who aren't part of the community, who are run by big capital and who don't know you or give a shit about you. Like, you know, there yeah. has been private delivery in the system, but it's very different. Yeah. Than, than this uh, private equity-driven oligopoly that yeah. we very well may see. Because I know people say there's always been private delivery, which is true. There has been private delivery.
1: Well, doctors are private, right? They're, they are private. So they bill and they are, yeah, private, independent, you know, uh, when well, I say contractors, so to speak, but they've always been um, outside. They're self-employed,
0: right? Yeah, They're right? their yeah. yeah. own corporations. Are, they're not employees of the state. But it's different. that, that That's very different than having you know, Walmart branded, <laughs> yeah, clinics.
1: Yeah, and that's the that's the fear, right? That's the concern. It's just you see these these you know the the initial steps being made to just Tell not us. only you know re- yeah remove our our democratic rights and remove our fundamental human freedoms, our constitutional rights, and of course it always starts with with who they think they can you know get away get away with it with, right? Yes, so the right. most vulnerable, who have the least voice and inability to speak up. Right. Um, And and that's just just, it's so repugnant. It is so upsetting that this this is, you know, starting with a targeted, um, you know, focus on our most vulnerable in hospitals who are just waiting to get into a home that hopefully they'll feel safe and comfortable in. And now that's out the window.
0: And they're leveraging, as you're sort of indicating, they're leveraging a disaster that they have created through Either through yeah. neglect or through... And, yeah, uh, through
1: not exercising uh, the precautionary principle and doing things right. like having mask mandates and vaccine mandates and making sure that we get this under control, yeah.
0: And they've underfunded the system and they've yeah. picked off bits and pieces. And then they say, well, yeah. it's a crisis. We've got to quote-unquote modernize or innovate. Yeah, break um, it and
1: then re- and then privatize it. That's, you know, I remember always David Fisman started tweeting that very early on in the p- pandemic, right? And we were yes. all pointing out these things, but I always think of some of his, you know, very targeted tweets that were along those sure. lines. Like, first you break it, Then you privatize it, and and you look at what's happening, and how do you how do you not see that that unfolding right before your eyes?
0: Well, and and I want to get into some of that breaking and some of the sort of midterm or or, yeah midterm responses to the breaking. I want to get back to Bill Twenty Four with that or One Twenty Four. So Bill One Twenty Four limits how much you can increase the pay of nurses. Uh, it's well below inflation. It certainly is well below inflation right now, but it's well below the normal target, Canada's target for inflation. Uh, and now we get nursing agencies that are contracted by hospitals. And you mentioned earlier, they charge extraordinary amounts. Hospital health network bills have gone way, way up as it yeah, charge. Yeah, who owns
1: these agencies? Um, That's what the media needs agencies. to be looking at, right?
0: Well, I want I want to get into this. I mean, is the nursing crisis seems to me to be a key part of the broader yeah. healthcare crisis. Yeah. Um, you know, how much of an effect do you think you know Bill One Twenty Four has had, and how much of an effect has the nursing crisis you think um, affected the the collapse of the system?
1: I mean, that's primarily what it is, right? right. Like, there's, there's no question. So a lot. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of this would appear to all of us political economists who study labor um, you know, as, as a way to break, it's union busting at its finest, it's a way to ba- break the public sector. You, you create you know this crisis, the crisis came, whatever, and then you, you took or you didn't take certain steps to manage the crisis appropriately. So, and then on top of it, you and this was the worst, the Bill 124, you capped their wages. So then these, these poor nurses who are not making as much as other people in the hospitals, remember, Uh, are dealing with this inflationary backdrop and they're burnt out and they're having to deal with, you know, the mistakes of of government and actually, you know, keeping this virus in check and helping to prevent the increase in hospitalizations, which then increases their workload. And then they have these private agencies, right, who come in, Oh, hey, look at us. We're going to pay you these exorbitant rates and you don't even have to work full time because we're just going to pay you, you know, two to three times what nurses in the hospitals are working. So you don't have any full time, you know, allegiance to one hospital. We're going to send you all around to different ones, just like they've been doing in long term care to break the system there and to effectively reduce collective bargaining and, and bargaining rights more general, the, the workers power. This is what you do when you disenfranchise them. You take these workers who had allegiance to one place. They knew their colleagues. They knew their staff. They were, you know, they had this affinity to one specific hospital, for example. And they had seniority. They they could fight for better working conditions and for better safeguards for their their staff. Now you have them being, you know, incentivized away from any stable, fixed environment. And now you float them around like Uber drivers, Mm -hmm. effectively. So they don't have any allegiance, no worker power. And why would they, would they, you don't give them any option or power to actually defend others in need of the help or even themselves, because mm-hmm. now you've literally turned them into, you know, the, the equivalent, the healthcare equivalent of Uber drivers. And then you have to ask yourself, and this is the question that every investigative journalist needs to be asking and really focusing on. Why were they allowed these, these private temp agencies to gouge the, the, the hospital's like they were who Mm -hmm. who enabled because you could have you could have easily reined them in you could have created legislation to avoid what is happening so where are the conflicts of interest there this is what you need to be looking at please for the love of god media look at this start investigating these agencies and why they were allowed to gouge the system so much right because it clearly hurts the hospitals and then and then look at the vicious feedback loop it creates then it creates a situation where hospitals suddenly now need to make more money and then who are they charging now what new legislation just came out to facilitate the charging of people in hospital with exorbitant daily rates if they don't get out oh our most vulnerable alc patients that are majority seniors you see how this works Mm -hmm. it's this vicious feedback loop that hurts are most vulnerable. And you have to ask, well, who's benefiting? That's what we need to know right
0: now. You know, what what's, What strikes me is that there's, I mean, these folks always know one another. They're, mm-hmm. it's a, they, there's a shared class interest there, but whatever, what, what gets me is that I think they believe this This is a solution. I mean, you know, watching some of these people, it's easy to say, well, they're just nihilists. They're just, in, a, you know, whatever benefits them, but which, you know, people are gonna benefit, no doubt. Shareholders are gonna make more money. There's a group among them who truly believe that this is the way you fix the problem. They just don't <laughs> believe, they just don't believe in a public system that we collectively own and collectively benefit from. They just think, well, look, no, no, you need incentive. Well, you know, there's gonna be a private incentive to run a good business. And if you don't run a good business, well, then another one will open up and uh yeah, it'll bullshit. be better. And then customers will go to that as if this is something it's that bullshit. can be financialized, as if it's transaction like going to the coffee shop. You don't like the Starbucks pumpkin spice latte? You go to the Tim Hortons pumpkin spice latte. You don't like that? You go to Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. You don't like that? You go to your local mom and pop pumpkin. I've got pumpkin spice lattes on the brain. But you get, you know, it, 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 we're treating care, health, yeah. the most fundamental thing in our lives, yeah, as if it were a donut or a latte.
1: No, it's, a, yeah. I, it, it, frankly, any any individual, especially in healthcare, who, who genuinely thinks that that is a good idea, needs to have their brain checked because I, I just don't Good understand. luck getting an appointment. Well, yeah. Well, Hey, they, they can pull some strings, right? <laughs> yes, so, right? If they're high enough up on the chain of command, um, <laughs> right. Or hell maybe they'll make the argument for their own private clinics. Right. So, hey, sure. It's just so dirty. I mean, there's no, there is no evidence that I can find that actually shows that the private healthcare system actually benefits the average.
0: No, <laughs> in fact, there's, there's a study out of the UK that showed excess mortality when the when the United Kingdom uh, several years ago adopted a law, you know, that, that attempted to privatize elements of their system. Excess mortalities went up. Yeah, more people die in a private system. I mean, especially, and, and of course, who dies? I mean, people who can't afford to live. And the U.S. is a great example of that. I mean, the U.S. is an extreme example of yeah. privatization, but that's that's where that model tends. I mean, yeah. look at the countries in the world and who goes bankrupt from from healthcare the most. So I many people go bankrupt here and more of them will now, but yeah. the US has extraordinary amounts of, of bankruptcy it's disgusting. because of medical issues.
1: It's just a way for the rich people to get richer who then yeah. can, you know, pay for their own best doctors, best clinics, best everything because apparently they deserve more than the average person, right? Because if you're rich to hell with everyone else, Um, because, you know, you're not worthwhile, apparently, you know, private wealth is the only thing that should measure your, your ability to stay alive. Um, you know, oh, like, (laughs) just, you can't wrap your head around this stuff. It is, it is so clearly like egomaniacal and just narcissistic to the next level where, where anyone might think that this has any, some sort of public benefit. All this does is create a tiered, tiered system and people are going to suffer. And I even said the other day that this is, you know, this sets up, the, uh, you know, to further tier long-term care. Keep in mind, long-term care residents are generally lower income because rich people, sure. let's be honest, never go into long-term care. Never. There's a reason why Doug Ford's own mother was never in long-term care, right? Rich people can afford to hire round the clock private care. No other person could afford to. You need to be a multimillionaire to, to uh, you know, pay for round-the-clock private care. hmm um, or you have, you know, these very, you know, high class, you know, ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollar a month retirement homes that, that some of them send their loved ones to, but the lower income average individual goes to long term care, right? Because there is no public infrastructure to help you age at home safely and independently. There just isn't. Home care is a joke. You, you, they, they do not fund it properly, and they haven't for decades. This is well known. So you know, of course, it's going to create a situation where now people who may be able to pool their financial resources and keep those residents in hospitals longer and, and, and refuse, you know, to be shipped off to a dangerous, potentially dangerous home that hours away from their family. And then they're going to bankrupt themselves and pool their resources to keep them in a hospital and wait for a, for a better home. And then the people who don't have, you know, family, who don't have financial resources to spare, which is, you know, a lot of people then those are the ones that are gonna suffer first. Those are the ones that are gonna be shipped off to these homes. And then it's gonna end up being a further tiered system where the most vulnerable, the poorest, without any family, without any advocates will be the ones in the worst homes. I mean, it's disgusting.
0: It It is. I'm going to try heroically in the last 10 minutes that we have to end on, well, if not a hopeful note, a potentially hopeful note. Uh, we know there's a massive problem We know it's getting worse. We know we've reached a critical juncture. Uh, What's the alternative uh, to to Ford's reforms and the shift towards private delivery, towards outsourcing, towards private equity, scooping up parts of the system? How do we dig out of the mess we're in and preserve and renew the public system?
1: Try to solve that all in 10 minutes, if you could. That would be great. Well, th- just don't let them in. <laughs> just stop it. <laughs> Step in. one, yeah, sure. I mean, and unfortunately, you know, the Ford government has made it very clear what they're going to do and, and where their interests lie. There is no, I don't think they have any interest in expanding the public sector because everything they have done, you know, from, from handing out gener- generational licenses to, you know, military, uh, you know, occupied LTC chains. Like, I mean, you know, you're, you're just, there is, they just seem to keep rewarding. For profit, private interest, regardless of the track record, regardless of the evidence, regardless of everything that happened, and I, you know, how do you not feel hopeless at a point where you realize that they have a majority and they're going to do whatever they want? And and barring you know a general strike, and I really think we're we're heading to the point where people need to just walk out. Like you, you know, unfortunately, you got to look back to the past, different groups of, of people we able to fight back against this stuff is because they 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 did they fought back. They, there was general strikes. They walked out. They went for it, and that is unfortunately what I think we have to do. But is increasingly harder to do when you break apart the public sector, and that has happened during COVID, right? So when you take away their collective strength, the workers in hospitals, which is what has been happening because of these private you know temp agencies, um, you know how how do you how do you effectively fight back with the levels you need to unless well ideally you'd hope that those workers in the agencies would would walk out too because you have to know bigger picture that you know like this is going to just lead to nothing nothing good and unless there's a general strike I don't I don't know how we get out of this and and obviously lawyers have a big role in this they need to start suing the pants off of people and, and protecting these individuals constitutional rights like I wish I was a lawyer right now I have very little power other than using my big mouth to point out what I see is happening. Um, you know, but but lawyers have a role here, and they really i hope they're I hope they're starting their challenges and and people rising up. I don't know how we fight otherwise because you can't you can't ask nicely, I, that fails. You can't you know, present the evidence in, in, in a way that is very clear and compelling because we have and and they've ignored it. There's no you know, they're like. <laughs> You'd think if you provided all this evidence, you'd say, Oh yeah, you guys, everyone, you're right, you're right. You're right. Clearly this isn't working and we need to do X, Y, and Z. And it's just not happening. It's just not happening. So I wish I had a you know, maybe this is the the, you know, Debbie Downer in me, but it's I I'm having a very difficult time being optimistic right now and seeing anything but doom and gloom ahead because of of what what is happening it's just getting progressively worse it's like you think it can't get worse and then this recent ALC move was literally the lowest of the low like I've been talking to other politicians I've been talking to opposition uh you know members and they're just horrified and even they will tell you this is the worst thing we've ever seen like this is this is we didn't think that they could stoop so low and it's it's it just gets worse it seems every day and, and and I just I do I have a very real sense of fear for what lies ahead over the next you know four years, and and I don't I don't have the answers for how to fight back. I wish I did. Maybe you have some. I don't.
0: Enough, off the top of my head. No. I mean I think you're right. I I think collective bargaining and and uh, the threat of of widespread labor action and social pressure is critical. I also am a little bit skeptical because. Well, we just had an election in this province. We knew what mm-hmm. was at stake, even though we didn't really talk about this stuff during the the election. The Ford government yeah. uh, and the Ford campaign preferred to talk about a highway in Toronto. They didn't really want to talk about this. Obviously, we see why. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> which raises some questions I, I mean i think there are some serious questions that we need to ask that if we didn't discuss this during the election exactly uh, we, got, we end up with 43 percent of people turning out and you know 30x percent of them voting conservative effectively we've been stuck with these decisions by a tiny minority of the yeah. residents of, of ontario yeah uh, it doesn't say much about uh, no. our democracy does it
1: <laughs> no it doesn't and and it and it you know yeah i think the covid the the pandemic really handed them an easy win in the sense that you know when people say like well why why didn't people vote and why didn't they know why didn't they see how terrible that this would be and i think a lot of it is that people got so sick of the bad news all the time they just turned off the news a lot of people didn't want just because it was so upsetting. It is information overload in the worst possible mm-hmm. way. And there was a lot of bad things happening. I mean, my God, like, yeah, I know how it's impacted me paying attention to all the bad things that are happening in long term care. And it would be easy to just turn it off and say, you know what, I'm just going to focus on the fun things in life and not focus on the doom and gloom ahead. But that's not my personality, right? Yeah. But a lot of people just to save their own mental health, just turned it off and didn't realize how bad things were. And then when you add to that, that this government is very good at just telling you everything's great. Everything's okay. There's no problem. We're fixing everything. Look at us. They came in and we saved the day. And then people, because people generally want to believe that people are being honest with them and telling them the truth. Because that's the naivety of the average good human being. Why mm-hmm. would you start out thinking people are lying to you? It's a nice thing to think that people are telling you the truth. But unfortunately... As we have seen, that's not always the case. And when you see politicians weaponizing that and using it to deceive people en masse, then you see the situation we're in right now, where COVID was the perfect storm that enabled them to build up this this false mirage that everything is great and there are no problems and we're fixing everything, so don't worry. And then people take them at their word. And this is the disaster we're in right now.
0: Just gonna let that sink in for a second.
1: Yeah, it's not great.
0: It's not great. It's not great. But I mean, it, it's it's not great. But it is a critical juncture, and I and I do think we've seen a, some pushback and some rallying around the system, and and uh, it's a reminder that elections have consequences. The electoral system isn't the only way to fight back. We have lots of other ways, including, as you mentioned, labor action and, and solidarity. I, th- I do think there are ways. I hope this galvanizes people because it's going to be a very hard test of our resolve and of yeah. what we want for the future. And, and we're going to be putting, well, quite literally, our money where our mouth is, but certainly our time, our effort, and our attention in the weeks and months and years to come. I hope we, I hope you rise to the challenge. I really do. Uh, you have, uh, you, you say you don't have much power, but I, I, I think. Uh, what you what you're doing is critical and it's making a difference it's it's quite powerful in its way and so I know a lot of people appreciate that I certainly do and I know listeners will too um, but that brings us to time we didn't solve anything but I think we we might have done a little bit of good work today for the the cause of a public health care system for everyone so I think I think we can call this a win
1: I hope so <laughs> yeah I hope so right knowledge is power and that's always step one and that's you know what I uh, what I aim to do is just arm people with the knowledge that they need to make a different decision. That that's that's all I can do at this point. That's all I've been trying to do.
0: Well, and you do it very well. So thank you for that, and thank you for joining me here today. Uh, your second appearance. It's been a long time since we spoke, but uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for joining me here today.
1: My anytime, friend. Always a pleasure.
0: And as always, my thanks to Carolyn Smith ross clark and aisha jarrah who make the show not just possible but so much better than it would be without them and to to you each and every one of you listening thank you very much for joining me here again it's the fall now by the time you're listening to this which means the leaves are turning the pumpkin spice lattes are out the pumpkin beers are out it's fall weather you can go watch romantic comedies again and walk in slow motion through the park to borrow a joke from the office uh small victories small pleasures if you can I enjoy them. I highly recommend you do because it's going to be a long, cold winter. Okay, we'll see you back here in two weeks.